Matthew 6. We're going to be picking back up in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. So I want to encourage you, um, if you're at home in your living room, really try to, as best as you can to set aside the distractions so that way as we open God's Word, we can clearly hear from Him and uh, do, do the best part just to track along. So we'll be picking back up in chapter 6, and we'll be going through verses 1 through 4. And our passage is this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Um, I want to start off by prayer and just that we, we hear clearly and that God speak to us. So, God, we, we thank you for this opportunity um, to gather, even though it's online, to, that we still have your word and that your Holy Spirit will move and speak to your church. God, help us to clearly hear. Help my words uh, not hinder from what your, what your word is trying to communicate, what you want to say to us today. God, help us to to take this in, to respond to who you are and what you say to us as your people, as people that are part of your kingdom. We just ask and pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So here we kick off in chapter 6. Have, have you ever noticed, I'm going to start off with this, have you ever noticed that our culture is obsessed with the idea of authenticity? If we stop and, and really think about this, it kind of permeates almost every facet of our culture, from from businesses who kind of realize this early on, um, it, earlier maybe 15 years ago, they start making this shift where they, instead of having this facade and trying to hide all their fissures and cracks and problems, they begin to show, hey, we, we struggle in these areas to kind of show that, hey, this resonates with people when we are completely real and honest and upfront. People respond to that. And, and on many other levels, if you think about it from, from our foods, we, we have this idea of organic food, what's with healthy and real versus other foods or a whole food, something that is good or ethnic foods. Hey, is this authentic food? Is this authentic Thai cuisine? Or is, it, is this just a cheap fast food imitation of that? Um, down to even our experiences where we have this idea of what's manufactured or what's a truly authentic experience. Um, we, we see this in other areas from, from music uh, to arts and sports. In, in music, uh, w growing up, we used to listen to a lot of heavier music and the whole idea, we had this term, a sellout. If you were one of the bands who, who earlier on gave in and began to go to uh, the bigger record labels and change your style just for making money, you were considered a sellout. We, we get, we'd term that because their music was no longer authentic. Or we think certain styles of, is this authentic blues? Is this authentic jazz? Um, even so much so, I remember one of my earliest memories of things being authentic was this band that came on in the later 80s, and they had several... Tart 
chart-topping singles. And they even won Grammys for this, all of a sudden to find out that these people actually never sang on the album. This, this was Millie Vanilli. I know I'm dating myself by this, but if you guys remember that, there's this band and they, they looked the part, they acted the part, but it turned out that they actually never really sang on this album. And so they end up having to give back the, these Grammys that they won and immediately the whole culture kind of turned against them. Um, in skating, when I was a kid, we would have, if you dressed the part and acted the part, but you actually couldn't skate, we'd call you a poser. And, and so if we kind of just kind of flesh this out in every little area of our life, we kind of see that we crave something truly authentic. Even now in our current situation with the whole COVID-19 um, in our political sphere, what, what's real news? What's fake? Why are we getting something that's true and authentic and genuine and real? What do we believe? And when we find something or term it to be fake, we, we push against it really hard. We want to do away with it. It's as authenticity has kind of devolved into just another brand value that's kind of been baked as a commodity to sell. Or even in the personal realm, what's the continual message, the self-message? Be yourself. Be the real you. Just be yourself. Express yourself. And we're like, yeah, that's what we want to be. We want to express who we are. We want people to know who we are. But that kind of leaves some questions. There's this thing called the authenticity paradox. And that would state this. Hey, what if being the real you, if you really truly expose the real you, what if that's something that nobody likes? What if you're just truly a jerk, an egotistical driven person? Then kind of being authentic is something that nobody wants to tolerate. And so just kind of fleshing out, we, we have to admit that the idea of wanting something real and, and truly authentic, it just punctuates every level of our culture. So why is that? Why do we have that innate desire um, to seek something, want, desire something whole, desire something pure? And in our text here in Matthew 6, we see Jesus moving. We're, we're kind of entering this new section. And he goes from, you've heard it said. And then he, he goes through uh, divorce and lust and loving our enemies. You've heard it said and kind of fleshing out the law, giving it full meaning. This idea of the greater righteousness, some term it. Um, um, what it takes to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he, we kind of make this sudden shift as we come to chapter 6 towards a practical outworking um, in, in regards to our realm of personal practices or what we call disciplines, kind of spiritual or religious in nature. And from there, we go from these disciplines, from, from prayer to fasting to, to being generous, this trajectory to what, it looks like to live in the world in our daily life. So that's kind of the path that we're on here. And this transition is still consistent with where we just came from. It's still highlighting the issue of the heart, the inner man, what's truly happening on the inside. And Jesus is giving us a warning. Kind of this warning says that there's a heart issue at stake, not in only regards to what righteousness is, what righteousness is in anger, in, in relationships, in, in loving our enemy, but how we live it out on a daily basis, how we practice this. So verse one says this, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. So the warning, Jesus issuing this warning, beware of practicing your righteousness. 
Now, when you do righteousness or good works to be seen by men, now we have to stop and think, okay, good works or righteousness is a good thing, is it not? If we go back to the beginning, didn't Jesus already say that we're to let our works be on display? Is this in contrast or what is happening here? In, in Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So let your works be on display. But then we come here and he's saying, he's issuing a warning. Hey, be careful when you are practicing that. When you're doing these religious practice, the idea is what are we trying to get out of it when we do these practices? We're still dealing with heart motives. What is your heart motive? So what Jesus is challenging here isn't the practices, but why are we doing what we are doing? And he's challenging what we call hypocrisy. Now, if there's one thing that this world is not tolerant of, it's, it's being a hypocrite. It's hypocrisy. It's never viewed in a positive light. Most of us just hate the idea of it. And we're not tolerant to those things. Now, some of us may actually um, participate um, habitually in hypocrisy. And if we're really honest at some level, at some point, the truth is we've all done this ourselves. We've all been a hypocrite. But for the sake of this study, let's define what hypocrisy is. What is being a hypocrite? So the definition, I would say, the working definition is this. Hypocrisy is the contrivance of false appearance of virtue or goodness while concealing the real character traits or inclinations, especially with respect to religious and moral beliefs, or the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform, intentionally deceiving others in opposition to what is really happening on the inside playing the part, pretending to be something that you're not. And I think we, we understand this and we, we don't like hypocrisy. We want something genuine and real. And we've even probably so much so don't tolerate hypocrisy that we've heard the sentiment expressed from outside the church. The church is full of a bunch of hypocrites. Christians are hypocrites. I'm sure some of us or most of us have heard this. And some may even still carry this view today, even from inside the church. It's, it's, our, it's common for our culture to want to move away from anything that looks so-called religious because we have seen people do religious acts um, just for the recognition of man. And we've all seen this probably on some level. But I want to say this, hypocrisy is not a real excuse to disregard Jesus. I'm gonna be really clear about this. Outside or inside the church, that is just a really poor excuse. And, and because of this, we've kind of, I've seen this trend where we've seen people who have misused and, and done things in the name of Jesus or done religious practices to get attention. To, to exploit these things. And so we've seen that and we've moved away from it where we have swung to the extreme where we don't do anything. Our, our response to that is to completely not do anything at all. But, but we need to listen here. Verse two says this, thus when you give to the needy, when you give. See, it's presumed that we would actually be 
partaking and practicing these things. Jesus isn't saying, hey, don't do these things. We, we've made it pretty clear that our good works are on display, and when people see those, they will give glory to God. So it's assumed here, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. So let, let's kind of define what we mean by practice or discipline, because I know that kind of can paint a, a dirty word in some people's mind. Maybe it made you feel un, 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 uncomfortable. It seems like a heavy statement. Um, that Jesus would assume that we would be partaking in these things. So a, a practice would be just an outworking of a belief system to actually engaging and putting tangible feet to this, uh, a discipline, uh, a way we would go about a system to achieve a goal, um, a higher form or an art. So, so this idea, we use that term um, for this narrative, practices and disciplines to describe how we do uh, pious or religious acts, such as prayer, such as fasting, such as giving. We would say this is, a, this is a practice, something we do because we've seen it modeled. We want to be like Jesus, and therefore we do that. And Jesus affirms the need for discipline. He's not condemning it. And we see this in the whole canon of Scripture. If we, if we kind of look at the whole entirety, we have to say, yes, we need to be, as, as, as people, as part of the kingdom of God, we need to be practicing these things. And in 1 John, uh, John records this. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, John says this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. For you know that he who is righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And he even goes on to say, hey, if we're of God, we, we, will, we will practice righteousness. And he actually contrasts that with this idea that people who habitually sin or practice sin are actually not of God the Father. That the Holy Spirit will actually convict you of it. That that should not be true. As those who are followers of Jesus, you will not partake in practice habitual sin, but on the contrary, you will actually do works that point to God. So Jesus here affirming the need for discipleship, and he's not condemning it. But the problem, if we begin to view discipline as a burden, now we might say, hey, this is legalistic, or this is heavy, isn't salvation by grace? Do I have to do this? But I want to I encourage you, yes, our salvation is by grace. But let's think about this. When, when we begin to do the right practices, the right disciplines actually will bring us freedom. We've, we've been set free. And to walk in that freedom, we need certain practices and disciplines to help with that. And a good example is a musician. When a musician sits and he practices for hours, running scales, practicing songs, he is more freely able to express from his instrument. He's not hindered by anything. The more, the more practices, they kind of hone the motor skills. He's more able to accurately articulate and express what he wants to express because he has put time and effort into these practices. Same with athletics. We don't just walk on the court and expect to compete in basketball at an NBA level without ever practicing. That would be absurd. We'd think that's completely foolish. So we can see this in every aspect. When do we begin to take disciplines and skills and practices and something that we work at 
and say, hey, those actually help us. They give us freedoms to more accurately and to better do things. I mean, when have you looked at your life and said, you know what? My completely undisciplined life has worked out really well. Me just being lazy and, and kind of not practicing or work every, out, working at anything has just really played to my benefit. I'm so much better for not having any discipline in life. Um, you, you begin to break down and be like, that, that's a really stupid statement. We, that does not play true. Have, have we ever seen anybody who's ever good at anything that didn't take some effort or practice to kind of get there? It's not naturally that we're born good, perfect out of the box, but it usually it's a repeated process of time that helps us in this. And we have to kind of acknowledge this, that, hey, we're all on some path, on some trajectory of life. And what we do and what we value leads us down that path. So consciously or unconsciously, listen to me, you are moving in a direction. Right now, currently, you are on a path in life. And what you are doing is help shaping that. It's building your character, who you truly are on the inside. And if we're leaning towards completely undisciplined, chances are good that we have this life that's kind of chaotic. And, and we want to do the right disciplines to help us walk, to, to know that, hey, as we move along this path, what I give my time to, what I give my affections to are actually passively shaping us and helping us walk along. We're moving in some direction. I'm sure you've heard this saying, if you don't stand for something, you will fall for everything. And if we kind of think about that, without discipline, you're going to be consumed and controlled by everything around you. If you do not set these guards that help you spiritually discipline yourself to have a spiritual mindset, you're actually going to be pushed and pulled by the world around you. And, and on some level, we're all going to struggle and we're all going to fail in this. But in love, I just want to encourage you guys that some of us may just have an all-out discipline problem right now. That, that our life is ruled by complete undiscipline. So if we say the right discipline brings us freedom, we need to find the right disciplines. And we go to get wisdom and seek guidance from Jesus. And here, in this section, Jesus is kind of laying out three distinct disciplines, or, or what we call spiritual disciplines. He's In this section, we move, and this is meant to be joined together, and moving from giving, generosity, moving to praying, and then moving to fasting. And, and when it says when you give, and also when you pray, and when you fast. And commentator uh, France noted this, that there were th these three practices are the most prominent and practical requirements for personal piety in mainstream Judaism. So when Jesus is speaking to the crowd, they understood, hey, we, we currently partake in this. We are disciplined in these things. We practice these things. These show that we are, are good Jews. And so Jesus here is focusing on the idea of the practice of giving. And giving worked like this. Why, why, did, why, did, why did people give? Why is it important to give? In, in Israel, there were no social programs. Uh, God's plan for poor people was for the people of Israel to actually be generous. 
the people of God. See, God's plan was, I'm going to call out this people and the way they live and the rules which they follow are actually going to point to who I am in the character and heart of God. And God, who is holy, he's not like any other gods. He's, he's very distinct. He's unlike anyone else. He's also generous. He is giving. He's kind. He's patient. And so these attributes were to be seen practiced by the people because it pointed to God. And giving was a part, even a part of their temple worship. They would give there. They'd show up to give. It was integrated into that. So why is generosity good? Why, why is giving good? Why, why should we give? We're not Jewish people. We're not directly being spoken to by Jesus. Why is generosity good? But I think it's a similar principle to that of Israel. As, as image bearers of, of God, as people who are part of the kingdom of God, we represent our king and we represent the principles. We operate in those principles of the kingdom. The, the kind of Israel principle, the same way. The way we act, the way we give, points to truths in the character and heart of God. So we want to be a people who champion generosity. We champion giving. And, and we can see that throughout scripture that God has demonstrated great generosity towards us. God demonstrates his great love by giving. John 3.16, one of the most well-known Christian verses, for God so loved the world that he what? He gave. And are we recipients of that generosity? Yes, we are. That is something to greatly rejoice in. We are great beneficiaries of his great generosity in that. We see God over and over again giving of himself to redeem his people. And that is, a, that is a characteristic that we want to model. It's also something that we model as an act of worship. In, in Hebrews 3.16, it says this. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That, that, that generation, that generosity. Don't neglect to do and to share and to give because that's pleasing to God. And it's laying that in the context of an act of worship that we can actually be generous. And it is an act of worship directly to God. We even see other New Testament principles laid out for generosity. In, in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul paints a picture of what generosity should look like in giving of, of our stuff. And in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 7, it says this. The point is this, speaking of generosity. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That God actually takes delight in people who just abound in, in generosity and giving. That's pleasing to God. So if you kind of live stingy and we live it all close fisted and close to our chest, we, we kind of reap a stingy life. We won't reap anything that's beneficiary to us. That's not a benefit to us. We won't begin to flourish. John Stott gave this definition. He says, Christian giving is uncalculated generosity. See, being generous helps us deconstruct and tear down one of our greatest idols of our life and in our culture today. And that's money. That's stuff. 
something that really has great weight and importance in us. But when we are generous, it shows, God, you are actually in control. I am one to be like you because you are generous. And it helps us tear down that mindset that, hey, that might be an idol that we struggle with. But when I'm generous, it speaks of something else. It helps shape our mind and realizing, hey, we have to rely on God for our sustenance. It helps us realize that everything we have is actually from God. Our, 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 our patterns, our, how we live, life is shaped and, and communicates something greater. And some of us need to be set free from just the idea and the reality of fear of holding on too tightly to something that we think belongs to us. But in reality, we say we are part of God's kingdom. Everything that we have is his. But our tendency is just to hold on tightly to that. Where, where, where does that boundary actually lie in your life? And only a, God knows where that is. And so sign, kind of practicing generosity helps us live out a truth. Um, for me, it works like this. My wife is much more generous than us than I am naturally. If we have money and we're, we decide, hey, let's give extra. We want to give extra to the missionaries. I'm like, yes, that's a great idea. I'm all about that. And so we're like, okay, let's write out the check or let's do the giving. How much did we want to give? And she lists an amount. It's like, well, that's, yeah, that's, that's very generous. And it kind of pushes my bounds of what I'm actually comfortable in giving with. But it's good to be challenged. Like, wh where is our boundaries and our generosity? When we see a God who just so greatly gave. And our, our prior, primary motivation for giving and generous is out of love for God. It needs to just be that reaction because God so loved us. And, and this was made known and it was demonstrated to us by the transforming work of the gospel. When we think of the gospel narrative that we were, we were lost, we're enemies of Christ, but yet while we were dead, Christ gave, he, he saved us, he, he chose, but God, and poured out great generosity to come seek and to take our place. Um, we really want to be people who champion this. And we can see the gospel is all about generosity, the story of that, it, it, it permeates every aspect of that. Thus, in verse 2, it says, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. For truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So we see this, that a good discipline with wrong motives leads us to hypocrisy. Us doing something to get the attention of people, kind of blowing a trumpet. Um, that might seem really odd in our culture. We don't really see that where people go to the street corner and say, hey, I'm giving to this needy person. Do, 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 do. Please pay attention to me. But we do want people to notice that. I mean, could you imagine if we walked around and every time we did something good, we just kind of do, 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 do. Hey guys, pay attention, I just did something great here, please notice. Now that seems kind of funny and absurd, but I, I guess this was a practice in the time, maybe to draw attention to, hey, they're about ready to give handouts to people. But really the question is, what does this look like in our culture? What, is that, what does this look like for us? Where, where, what are our trumpets? Um, the easy one I think right now is to notice is probably social media. Hey guys, guess what I'm doing? devotions, loving the Lord, you know, what, what, are we, what are we doing when we post these things, you know, 
do you know, like we, we can partake in a really good thing, but if our motive is to get likes or for people to notice, be like, wow, that is a really just holy person, we need to stop and think, hey, God, what, what is the internal motives? What, why am I doing this? Do I just desire the applause of men? Um, what about our bosses? You know, it's really easy when our bosses come around, like some of us are working at home. How are we truly working? What, what happens when nobody's working, but when our bosses come, do we immediately get busy and start working? Oh, I'm, I'm a hard worker. But when the boss leaves, we're, we're not too concerned about our character in that work. Um, being a part of church is really fascinating. I've been a part of the church ministry a long time and how people respond when, when the pastor, the head pastor comes around. All, eventually, like they see, oh, here comes a pastor and they start doing holy things and kind of changing the way they act and even the words that they speak change. No, no, why is that? Do we want to, the pastor to look at it and say, oh man, that's, that's my congregant is a really holy person. Now that, that shouldn't be, and we can laugh at that, but we if we're honest, heavily motivated by, by what people think of us. In, in this situation now where we're stuck at home, are we trying to find outlets for people to notice it? Are we trying to make no, noise for people to say, hey, what, what are they doing? And that's a fine line we have to walk of like, hey, actually communicating and actually doing good things to be seen by God the Father, or do we just want people to notice? Um, what about in context of our gathering or church? When, when we gather in our worship, are we, are we raising our hands and passionately seeking God, but then the way we live Monday to Friday just does not line up? Is it completely inconsistent? Do we talk a lot about the Bible, but then live completely contrary to what God's word commands us? And I, I recognize we're all guilty and we all struggle and we all fail with this, but to answer this accurately, it really takes a lot of self-reflection. How, how much of what we really truly do is done to just inflate our own ego? See, and Jesus is really getting at the motives here and on our affections. We value, if our value and our worth is founding others, noticing us and applause, it, are, we're going to fall short. It will not satisfy us. Do we uh, crave the applause of people? For verse two says this, truly you have received their reward. They've received the reward. If that's what we're after, that's all you're going to get. And the language here is this, that it's a, it's a business term, that their payment has been received in full. God literally just stands out of the way and says, that wasn't about me. You, you got what you were after. And that was to be noticed and to have the applause of men. There it is. That's the end. I, it does not please me what you have just done. Now, it, we're going to live shallow and thin lives if our whole purpose in, in living and pursuing Jesus is just to massage our own egos. We're never meant for that. We, we were meant to flourish in life and to partake in these good practices because God, as a good, kind father, says, hey, these are good. This is what it's like. This is original tent. This is the way I made you. And, but they weren't done for your glory they weren't done for your applause, but they're to be done for the glory of God, not the glory of ourselves. And we have this proclivity to take this good thing and to bend it and break it and to misuse it. 
We can take disciplines that we see demonstrated and exercised in Scripture, things that we're actually commanded to do, and we can turn them into a legalistic. We can make them legalistic, something that we have to do to maintain. And it turns ugly when we begin to do these things. Like, oh, you have to do these because it's displeasing to God. They can turn really ugly, and we've all seen that. And then we take the ugly, and we see that, and then we run to the far extreme where we do absolutely nothing. And I don't think that's where we are to exist. Verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. This I've heard interpreted and I've heard, I've seen responded to in some very odd ways. It's kind of odd language. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And I've seen people take that and be like, don't let people know and see that you do good things. So they begin to to give, like they go give to the blessing box. They try to hide and sneak so nobody sees because then I'm going to lose my reward. Or if somebody gives you a compliment, hey, well done with that. It's like, oh, well, thank you for mentioning that. Now I just lost my reward. That, that, that's probably not what's going on. And I've, and I've seen that tendency to kind of swing to the extreme. Don't let anybody know what you're doing. But, but the idea is this. I think that we, we want to be serving and seeking God, that the object, if God is our object and our attention and our motivation is to bring him glory, that we'll be so preoccupied with doing that, that our left hand isn't going to actually pay attention to what our right hand is doing. Because it'd be, it's, it's literally impossible to not know what your right and left hand are doing. So we have to kind of, we can't take this literal uh, in, in the sense of like, we have to sneak and hide everything, but how, how do we engage in this? Um, if it's for the approval of people, it's just going to control us. But we want to be living in such a way that like, hey, we're not really paying attention. We don't, our object isn't to be noticed, but like we want to bring and please give glory to God and please him. And so then we're not really worried about who notices, who's paying attention. We're just going to live out of love for God and what he's done for us. And if approval is what we are seeking of people, it's going to be a beast that you're going to have to feed. If we have a problem with this, what happens when you don't get the applause? It's going to devastate you. You're going to be left worse. You're going to be left unsatisfied. This will rule your lives and eventually fear or control will begin to take over. The fear of not, man, who's paying attention to me? I'm not getting the attention I need. But... The gospel has actually set us free from this. God has set us free in this, where we don't need to be noticed. That, that doing this simply because it pleases God, that he notices, that is enough. So, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with hypocrisy? What, what are the steps for it? How, how in our own lives, in, in others, in our church, how do we begin to deal with this issue? Um, first off, it has to be viewed in the light of the gospel. And, and this is a big point. Recognize this. We are all sinners. All of us. We are all sinners. We, we don't come to church because we're good people. We don't gather just to hang out, a place where good people gather to hang out in their goodness. We don't have it all together. 
it shouldn't really surprise us that people have wrong motives. These things even flare up in my heart, in my life today, um, and it should flare up in all yours, that we have these competing things. We still have this sin nature, and we struggle with this. But the gospel is about what Jesus did for us. It's not what, about what we did, but it's about what Jesus did for us. Our spiritual standing is not based on what others think of you. Not how well they think, but it is solely on what God thinks of you and who Jesus is. It's based entirely on Jesus. And that should be really freeing. You're no longer stuck with the weight to have to achieve to a certain level because Jesus did this. You can't reach your own righteousness. You can't complete your own righteousness. Maybe we do good things because we are under the weight. We think it earns God's favor. It doesn't. We are completely loved and we're completely accepted because of the work that Jesus did. We're free to confess our faults, and that's a big one. When we try to live a life where we have this facade or this fake outside where we can we just spend our time on the exterior, we're not actually living true, we're not actually living authentic. We are free to confess our faults. We know that when we sin, we can go to God and he washes us clean to God, to others. And when we don't confess it, it's just going to shrivel our soul and it will be a blockage to our walk with Jesus. When you begin to hold sin inside, you're going to be struck with the fear of having to maintain this appearance, having to maintain everything's good and fine. And in, in, in church, that happens a lot. Even in the leadership, when people fall into sin, they think so many eyes are on them, they cannot freely confess their sin and be open and repent and turn from this. But yet they'll just pursue on this path of trying to maintain the facade on the outside, and it doesn't work. The gospel tells us something much different, that, hey, you're all sinners. Your adequacy is found in Jesus. Your shame has been washed away in Jesus. And so you can freely confess. You can freely walk. Verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Knowing this, God always sees. God, God's always with us, and he's the one who we want to reward us. He's the one who promises that he sees what we're doing. And he also knows our hearts. He knows our intents. His presence is with us. If we're, if we're truly been regenerated and we are followers and sons and daughters of the King, the, his Holy Spirit lives in us. And this idea, I want to point out some things. Your father, we go to this intimate term. It's not this God who has distanced himself, but our father sees us. It implies relationship. We have a father. It's familial. We, we understand that as human beings. We understand what it's like to have a father. And the cure, I think, for habitual hypocrisy is this. Intimacy with God. Intimacy with the father. What, what do we value is a, is a good question I want to ask you. What, what do you value? What do you put weight on in your life because where your affections are, that's where your heart's going to follow. And if we're busy cultivating a relationship with God, if we're knowing and pursuing the heart of God, we're going to know God more. And that intimacy is going to overflow into every aspect 
of our lives, if we know and pursue the heart of God, it's essential to our walk and our faith. Intimacy with God. Because these disciplines are one way that help us cultivate our relationship, and they also help shape our affections. When we spend time in prayer, it tunes our heart to a loving Father. It tunes our heart to His grace. It helps us hear from Him. And, and the reality is this. What happens in private eventually spills out into the public. Our private lives, what truly happens on the inside, or what happens when nobody sees, will eventually begin to spill out and become manifest on the outside. And if we're pursuing intimacy with God and relationship, that, that shapes what comes out. That shapes what comes out of our heart and how we live. And we have to start there. Instead of trying to start like, hey, let's fix the exterior. God's saying, hey, I want to start with you in your heart. I've given you a new heart. One that was formerly of stone, but I've given you a heart of flesh. And I want to work in that day by day. I want you to become more like me. And when you begin to take time and practice and discipline these things, we become more like Jesus. And we need to be intentional with that. We don't want to distance ourselves from God. So we need to be recognizing on a daily basis that when we are close with him, when there's communion and we're practicing these things that bring us close, those things will begin to affect. And if we want to walk rightly in his spirit, those will begin to pour out of our lives. They, they will begin to, to point when things are wrong. It will show us, hey, we're, we're missing the point. We're doing this for the, the applause of man. I'm getting off. God fixed this. Help me to understand. Help me to pursue what's right. So finding the right disciplines and recognizing, hey, we've all been saved, but we also need to take time and to dis discipline ourselves into spending time with God. Now, if we don't, if we're worried about maintaining the facade, it's just going to produce this really ugly version of religion. And we've all seen that, where we begin to do things only just for the notice of man. And we're going to be stuck there. And, and confession and repentance becomes that much harder because the more we spend time in our own merit, and our own strength, building up this facade, it's harder to turn back from it. So we want to be at such a place that we know and we're responding to the heart of God. We're responding to God's Holy Spirit when he speaks to us. So as we wrap up, how can we practice generosity? How do, how do we actively begin to partake in this? How do we begin to walk this out? How are we being generous with our stuff? What, do we hold things too tightly? During this time, are we being generous because, generous because God is generous? What about discipline in general? Maybe we're just come to this point like, hey, I actively just partake in habitual hypocrisy and, and, and laziness and completely undisciplined. We need to ask that question and, 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 and change. Ask God, God, search me, know me. I need your Holy Spirit to walk this out. We need to confess. But also, we don't need to be condemned because the gospel tells us that we are accepted, that Jesus paid it all and it is finished. And so we have these contrasting things of like, God, you've done so much for it. Thank you that it is not on my own merit, but yet I want to be, 
a person who responds to you and who you are. I want to rightly reflect when people look at me that they see something different, something that is transcendent, a transcendent truth. And we need to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. And as we continue through Matthew, we really have to just take time and ask ourselves, what, what drives us? What motivates us? And um, I want to encourage you guys, we are not sitting in a room all together. We're speaking over the internet where distractions abound. It could be really easy to just tune out, oh, I'll pick this up later, or to not really do any work that maybe that the Holy Spirit is convicting you of. And I would encourage you guys, take the time, really ask the hard questions. Even though we are separated in distance and we're not in the same room, we cannot respond now in prayer together and worship in the same way we would if we gathered in person. But don't let these opportunities pass by to respond to God's word. Because when God speaks, we want to be a people who respond to what it is he's communicating. So let's pray. God, we, we love you and we thank you that you have paid it all, Jesus, that your blood is the atoning work, that the story of the gospel, it removes us from fear, it takes away our shame. And God, as people of your kingdom, as, as partakers of your grace, something that we did not earn, we want to rightly walk, we want to be obedient children. God, speak to us. If we need to, to work on disciplines or to being more generous, God, will you work that? Help us to to just have just the mindset, God, we want to move at this, even daily small steps. We want to be more like Jesus. And, and God, just make up for any areas where I've spoken clearly. God, thank you that your word is powerful and is, is bigger than that. And we love and trust you. And we just ask and pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.